Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, July 23rd, and we're checking out Blend Labs. I'm your host, Owen Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's chief curator of cautious continuous compounding, Brian Faroli. Brian, how you doing? Dylan, I thought this week we were going to do some other show other than an IPO show, but just yesterday, I got a message from one of my followers about an interesting company, and I said, all right, Dylan, we're going to do another one. <laughs> you know, we can't stay away. We just keep coming back to them, Brian, because they keep showing up. That's just how it works. It won't always be this good. We won't always be spoiled with new SaaS companies that are coming public that have numbers that make us interested. Spoiler alert. But this is one that I think definitely checks that box for us. It certainly does. We're going to be talking about blend. And you know, I think you could say that the last year and a half or so has been marked by a lot of companies coming public. Uh, that has kind of been the zeitgeist, Brian. This company in particular squarely where consumer spending and consumer attention is right now. Uh, they are focused in consumer credit, and they really got their start in the home loan origination process. So a business that is really front and center with where attention is right now in the, in the financial markets. If you're like me and had never heard of Blend Labs before, uh, we'll get into the reasons why. But I want to read the message that um, one of my followers, Julian Gregorian, he's at stealth underscore bandit, sent to me. He said this message to me. You and Dylan might want to check out this company called Blend Labs, B-L-N-D. New SaaS IPO, growth of 100% with a Dabner, dollar-based net uh, revenue retention rate, over 150%. So I said, okay. <laughs> you have our attention. <laughs> you have our attention. And this company is actually public. So this isn't just an S1. We do have some data for the company. So it did price at $18 per share. Uh, raising $335 million after subtracting fees. The stock did pop on the day of the IPO, up to $21. That's way smaller than we've seen for a lot of other stocks, uh, Dylan, especially with this kind of pedigree. So the bankers actually did a good job here pricing this. So let's give them some recognition for finally getting one right. Uh, as of the time of the taping of the show, this stock is about 16, 17 bucks, something like that. And the market cap is about $3.7 billion. Yeah. So priced basically uh, where they're trading now, where the, where the market perception of this company should be. So yeah, kudos to the bankers and, and kudos to the company, by the way, for, for raising capital at a reasonable valuation that uh, maximizes their ability to, to get capital. You know, Sometimes companies leave money on the table. Not really the case here so far. Um, this is a, a business, Brian, that I think consumers interact with, with almost without realizing that they are interacting with it. Um, but at core, what they're trying to do is bring transparency to finance, bring simplicity to finance, and uh, really take what is kind of a stodgy industry and bring it into the 21st century. If anybody has tried to get a mortgage within the last forever, I guess you could say, uh, even in 2020 and 2021, the process is still painful. Dylan, I know you have some recent experience with this. That's right. Yeah. So, so I um I wound up taking out a mortgage in 2020, and you know I think that there are players in the mortgage industry that have modernized, 
and I happen to use one of those players. I use I use Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. But uh, as any shopper should, I, I wound up going and getting quotes and, and working with a couple different banks just to see uh, what might be there for their there for me, including a bank that I have a, a very good personal banking relationship with, of checking savings brokerage with them. Um, and I, I think it is easy to forget. Rocket Mortgage has been around now for I think four or five years, Brian. How revolutionary that product was and how far ahead of the competition it still is, despite being out for multiple years. Because the process of doing everything online, being able to digitally upload everything, having it be a tech-first platform, so much simpler than what I got from the legacy provider that I was also working with. I can't imagine how difficult that was being. I mean, I refinanced uh, my mortgage uh, just over four years ago at this point, and I vividly remember how painful that process was. And I went with an internet bank. They gave me the best the best deal, but I still had to print and physically mail documents. I had to physically sign my name about 60 or 70 times. So it just shows you, um, if you're not going with a company like Rocket Mortgage, how behind the times are so many other financial institutions that deal with mortgages. Yeah, and, and I want to underscore something here where you know we're on the consumer side of this. And so we're experiencing a uh, an experience that has less friction to it. It makes more sense. It it kind of works the way that a lot of other tech first applications that we interact with every day work. And that that's just kind of what we've come to expect for a lot of those things. But working that way, reducing friction Reducing the amount of man hours and women hours that need to be in the mix in creating uh, all of the the documentation for the mortgage process, that's good for those companies too. And what I found going through that was not only was Rocket's process easier for me, they were able to meet me with something that the other banks simply couldn't match. And the reason for that, Brian, is they do it on volume. And because they are so high volume, they're way more competitive on costs. Uh, and they're able to scale everything uh, over over their costs and, and wind up with far better economics. So these tech-first platforms wind up being hugely beneficial both to consumers, but also to the banks that are offering them. And that's kind of the core of what this company does. Blend Labs essentially helps other financial institutions compete with Rocket Mortgage. They have a SaaS platform that is adopted by big banks and lots of other financial institutions. Uh, we'll get to some of their customers, but this includes the likes of Wells Fargo, uh, US Bank Corp, so huge banks. This company created this product that really simplifies so much of the process and digitizes it. So you can use Blend's platform for a verification purposes. It can help to automatically or systematize the identity, identity verification, asset verification, income and employment verification, credit verification. It also can help to speed up the decision-making process by automating uh, pre-approvals. Uh, and it can help to really optimize the workflow for both the bank as as well as the consumer. And the thing I love about this is this company developed this product in 2015 and launched it, and they had a heck of a hard time convincing these big players to adopt it. They were so used to the old way of doing it, and they didn't want to mess with any uh, technology. However, they specifically call out the Super Bowl in 2016, which is when Rocket Mortgage debuted, and they said that Super Bowl ad really changed the selling process, and all of a sudden, companies were calling Blend Labs to say, we need need to compete and we need your help. Yeah, I think in a normal real estate market, Brian, you want to be able to move 
reasonably quickly. You know, there there is a timing element to these things where uh, if you have multiple bidders, uh, you know, if, if you're able to get everything together and move the process along faster, that's going to work to your advantage as a buyer. Um, that's particularly true in a red-hot real estate market like we are in right now. I think the advantages that a lot of these uh, companies that have either homegrown their own tech solutions or are working with white-label tech solutions like Blend, they've, they've just seen basically huge adoption because they're able to work so much faster. And that's such an edge when houses are going so quickly. One of the things that this company calls out is that uh, it has many different case studies, but across their customer base, they say that by using their technology, the average mortgage loan cycle is reduced by more than seven days, and that cuts more than $520 in total cost savings. When you compare that to the cost of adopting this technology, they believe that that's a return of over 6.5x on the cost. Given that, I understand why this company is having success at landing big clients such as Wells Fargo. Yeah, it's huge, and and I think for you know a financial institution, um, the 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 case of me having a lot of assets with a bank, and then going somewhere else with my home loan is like a nightmare scenario for that bank, right? If you have a great relationship with a customer and you're able to offer them rewards, perks, things like that. And then for them to take their business elsewhere, despite that, um, is what you want to avoid. Um, and and you know, kind of thinking about all the different ways that uh, customers interact with financial institutions, we focused a lot here on mortgages, Brian. But so much of what they are trying to do expands beyond mortgages and really looks at consumer credit and consumer financial products in general. That's what I find exciting about this company. Uh, while it got its start just in mortgages, and that's still a major area for the business, it focused on that because that was the most challenging part of uh, consumer banking. When you think about getting a loan of any type, I mean, a mortgage is just the most painful and the most complex. So if they can develop the technology that simplifies that process, then they can take that same technology and apply it to other types of loans. So the company launched uh, this this technology for home equity loans in 2018, uh, for vehicle loans and deposit accounts in 2019, credit cards and personal loans in 2020. And it already has set its sights on other areas that it can take this technology to, which does great things for the business economics. You know, I, I didn't even think about this while we were preparing the show, Brian, but that reminds me an awful lot of the way that Amazon approached the online opportunity early on. I think one of the re one of the main reasons, a lot of people don't know this, but a lot of, one of the main reasons that Amazon focused on the book space in particular is that depth is all over the place with books. There are so many categories, so many authors. Um, just look at the Dewey Decimal System, right? It's outrageous. And they knew that there was a massive advantage in figuring out that problem and then being able to offer an, a massive library to consumers. Businesses that approach big, hairy problems that way and figure it out with one of the most complicated use cases wind up with a pretty easy path forward for some of the lighter lifts. I love that. When you take a technology that works for one thing and then you can later apply it to different uh, things down the road, that opens up opportunities. And one thing this company does call out is as more consumers, uh, excuse me, as more of its banking partners use this technology, that attracts more technology and data and data partners to, to come to it. So this company now has over 45 direct technology integrations, and that includes with uh, customer relationship management platforms, loan origination platforms, uh, banking uh 
products, uh, pricing engines, product uh, engines, as well as there's actually more than 1,200 realtors, 24 insurance agents, 900 settlement agents, and 29 data providers that are all providing information uh, back to Blend Labs. They believe that those numbers are going to continue to grow, and if so, that can create a virtuous cycle that really builds this company's competitive advantage. Yeah, this seems like a classic flywheel effect where you start getting data customers and providers in the mix, the offering that you are able to uh, put out there for all of those stakeholders uh, is only improved by more people being in the mix on that. Um, you know, your, your analytics only better by having more people in the mix. You continue to collect more data by having more people in the mix, and that allows you to make better decisions, Brian. Now, no surprise, given what this company does, 2020 was an, a banner year for business. Not only did they have record numbers of people join their partner uh, ecosystem, but they also saw an explosion in uh, customers as well as loans. If you look at where the company stands today, uh, they are now processing more than $5 billion in loans per day. Not bad, considering this product is essentially five years old, and it's already used by 31 of the top 100 US financial firms, 24 of the top 100 non-mortgage bank lenders, and overall they have 291 customers, including the likes of Open Door, that's uh, the SPAC that just came public that buys and sells houses. That's an impressive client roster given how early this company is. It is, yeah, and I mean, the, the legacy players are there too. Wells Fargo, US Bank, M&T Bank, uh, it, this is a business that probably has a very hard time and a very long sales cycle with onboarding folks, but you can see that the big institutions are buying into this. And and Brian, as you, we kind of talked about before, a big part of it is that they're catching up. You know, the industry has moved here, and this is the solution that gets them there without having to home grow it themselves. Nothing will make you adopt a technology like this, like seeing somebody else eat your lunch. So this company should be going out and giving a big hug to Rocket Mortgage saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are creating demand for our products. One other thing that I thought was interesting about this business is it itself, in addition to just coming public, just closed on an on an acquisition that's fair that's that's pretty exciting. So the company just bought a title insurance company called Title 365, which I'd never heard of before, but is a big player uh, in the title insurance industry. Uh, in 2020, Title 365 did over 200 million dollars in revenue and it includes six of the top 12 mortgage lenders uh, by volume that are plugged into its platform. That gives this company not only a new uh, new tool to sell to its customers but lots of revenue and increased uh, increased penetration into a bigger customer base. That's exciting. It's exciting and it's and it's an interesting acquisition Brian because uh you know we'll, we'll get into the financials in a little bit but uh they did about 100 billion in trailing sales uh and so over the last 12 months. And so that's a, a sizable acquisition when you think about the composition of that business. Um, it, it is not a small one, you know, so very often you see, you know, these, some of these mid-sized mid-cap companies uh, going out there and grabbing small players and kind of plugging them in, but that's, that's a sizable bet for them. Yeah, but we don't really have too much data on that. So the numbers that we're going to be focusing are just kind of the, the, the core business. So, so keep that in mind. But again, let's get right to the headline number for this company that I think was both a big wow moment for us in 2020. Obviously, a banner year for this company. This company's dollar-based net uh, revenue retention rate, the good one, retention, including churn, was 162%. That is Twilio, Snowflake, Zoom levels. That is an outstanding figure. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of number you get tattooed on yourself. You know, <laughs> like, it's it's outrageous to see it. You almost think it's a typo and that they transpose the two and the six. Um, it is it is that staggering. And that's rare company, Brian. You, you mentioned some names in there. Um, those have been some of the most anticipated IPOs when they did come public. Uh, this has been a little bit of a sleeper, which is kind of surprising given how strong some of the core metrics for this business are. And again, while that number was very, very, very high for for uh, for in 2020, it's not like that was a completely out of the out of the blue uh, number. If you look back over the last five uh, five five quarters, that's what we have uh, data on. That 162 was for December 31st of 2020. In the most recent quarter, March 31st, that number accelerated to 179%. And the reason that's doing so is because more banks are choosing to use this product to fund more of their loans. If you look at total banking transactions, in March 31st of 2020, so just over a year ago, uh, 191,000 total transactions took place in the platform. Fast forward to the first quarter of this year, that number grew to 494,000. So that is more than a doubling of total transactions in a relatively short period of time. Given that, I understand why this company has garnered a pretty generous valuation. Yeah, it, it totally makes sense to me. Um, I, I look at this and it's like a company that's solving a big and difficult problem, making it very easy um, you know, for, for some of these legacy players to catch up. And I like that we mentioned Twilio earlier because I think there are some comparisons here, Brian, um, both in the opportunity and in the risk. I mean, when we, for the folks that are, you know, maybe uninitiated with Twilio, uh, basically communications uh, for apps that don't want to build out those communications themselves and functionality for apps that don't want to do those themselves. And it may seem niche, but it's massive. And they, they solve a problem that a lot of people just don't want to have to home grow themselves. The risk with that is that they go out there and home grow themselves at some point. And we saw that that hit Twilio at one point with Uber, uh, one of their major customers. Um, the risk is always going to be there for something like this. But when you solve a problem and you do it so well, that becomes a very sticky relationship. Yeah, I, I, I think that there's a great, great analogy here. Although one thing I will say is that Twilio is primarily a usage-based model where the more information, the more you use it, the more you pay. There is some elements of that to this. And in fact, that was a little bit confusing to me at first when I was reading this. I was like, oh, a dollar-based net revenue retention rate that high, this must be a consumption-based model. There is a consumption component to it, but the majority of this company's revenue is actually subscription-based. So that big of a dollar-based net revenue retention shows that more consume, more of uh, the bank employees are using it and they're using it um, more across the, the organization. Only about 12% of this company's total revenue was usage-based in both 2019 and 2020. It's possible that could grow over time and that can be a larger and larger lion's share of the business. Uh, but don't make the mis don't, don't think like we did initially that this is a usage-based company. It's subscription mostly. That's a great point, Brian, because sometimes when you make those comparisons one stock to the other to try to help explain something, uh, you, you can easily assume you know all of those business model elements carry over. One thing that I was uh, a little surprised with looking at the, the S1 here is... Um, Customers weren't as concentrated as I thought they would be. Um, you know, we saw 18 customers generated more than 1 million in revenue. Uh, that was about 53% of revenue in 2020. But even the biggest customer for this company didn't make up as much of the pie as I thought they would. 
13% of revenue was their number one customer uh, in 2020. I'm going to guess that that's Wells Fargo. That's probably correct, although it might not be. Uh, and if you look back uh, in 2019, they had two customers that were more than 10% of revenue. They have over 290 customers in total now, and it is good to see that kind of a diversification. So yes, like you, I was pleasantly surprised to see there is some revenue concentration risk, but it's not nearly as high as I was expecting it to be. Yeah, I wouldn't have been surprised just on the early pitch for this business if one customer was like 40% of revenue. Just, just with the big names that they work with, um, and how much loan volume they handle, you know. Um, so, so obviously that mitigates some of the risk that you'd expect with one of these businesses. Um, let's let's look specifically at the books now that we've gotten a good overview of the business, Brian. Um, a good time to come public for a company like this. We talked about how 2020 was a banner year, nearly triple digit year over year growth for this company. Not surprising in a low interest rate environment where there are a lot of refis and a lot of new mortgages being written. Last year, their total revenue grew uh, 98% to $96 million. The next thing that I always look at is gross margin. And the gross margin here is good, not outstanding, given what we've seen by some other SaaS companies, uh, but good. It was 64% uh, blended. So that gave this company about $62 million, roughly, in gross profit. Now, that's the top line, and that looks pretty good to see that kind of growth. However, this company is spending big right now to drive that growth. So research and development, uh, sales and marketing, and general administrative costs last year were $137 million. That was more than double the company's gross profit. As a result, we saw a net loss of $74 million. That's a sizable number when compared to the company's uh, top line revenue of $96 million. So that is a downside to this company. It's relatively early in its commercialization, so the net losses are huge. One can hope that they'll follow time, fall over time, but make no mistake, this company is losing a lot of money and will do so for a while. Yeah, and, and that's just the phase they're in with, with a growth and adoption. I mean, if, if you are painting a picture of this business and this industry, it's basically there's Rocket Mortgage, there's everybody else. And if you can help everybody else match Rocket Mortgage at some point, you want to be the player there. If you're in a position to become that de facto uh, option for people that don't want to home grow it, you want to be as widely adopted as possible. And this is your opportunity to acquire customers because the use case is just so darn compelling right now. And the market is so hot. So I don't expect them to slow down any of that marketing spend. With what we see with gross margins, if they do at some point and they slow down some of that R&D as well, there's going to be cash left over. There's plenty left over uh, at 60 plus percent. There's been a little bit of expansion of that over time. But I imagine, Brian, with, with the mix of revenue and probably some professional services stuff that they have in there, uh, there's probably some things that weigh on that a little bit. That is one thing that irked me about this uh, this document is they just told us revenue. They said there's usage-based revenue, there's subscription-based revenue, there's consulting, aka service revenue, which we've seen in a lot of other SaaS companies carries a pretty negative gross margin, so that can drag it down. We didn't get any of that breakout with this document. All they said is, hey, here's our revenue, here's our cost of revenue, and our consolidated gross margin was 66%. I'm guessing that over time with scale, that number can continue to grow. Maybe it can get into the 70s, maybe even the high. 70s. Uh, but for right now, it's 66%. An okay number. We've seen better though. While we're airing some grievances, Brian, I'll, <laughs> I'll throw in there that over the course of the show, we have said Rocket Mortgage more times than they did in their S1. And um, I, you know, it, we're learning this space, right? And we're trying to get up to speed. I do think it's a little bit odd that 
a company like that was not name checked at some point during the S1, and that we didn't get specifically identified any any main competitors. Um, it's possible they're in there. I did a control F. I was looking for it, and I couldn't find them. Like you, I searched competitors, and this company was tight-lipped about it, other than to say, we compete with a lot of companies. We're not going to tell you who they are. Just know that they're they're out there. Uh, some quick searching showed me that some of their main competitors could be a company called Black Knight, which I've never heard of, but is a major player in this industry. Ice Mortgage Technology, if that name sounds sort of familiar, that's because it used to be called Ellie May, which is a company that I was actually an investor in when they were public before they got uh, bought out. Another one to keep your eye on is called Encino, uh, N-C-N-O which is a company that came public that uh, does a lot of back office 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 work for banks and could be a direct competitor with them to say nothing of Rocket Mortgage itself. But yes, like you, I was a little irked that we didn't get more details about here are our main competitors. One thing to love though, Brian, is we do have a founder-led business. Uh, Nima Gamsari, uh, the CEO, is the founder, still at the helm, still heavily invested in the business. Um, and there's there's kind of a nice founder story here in that you know this is someone who I think identified a problem, <laughs> thought, okay, I'll go out there and fix it, found that there was a lot of friction to getting adoption with that service, but had the breakthrough moment in part because Rocket Mortgage kind of forced the hand of the industry um, and was then there to provide to everyone else who wasn't there yet. I love finding founder-led businesses, and I love that that's what this happens uh, here. Uh, our standard checks came out with pretty good results here. So if you go to Glassdoor, while there's only 36 ratings, not a ton, the early ratings on this on uh, Nima uh, are pretty darn good. 4.2 stars out of five, 86% of them approve of him as a CEO, and 79% of uh, employees would recommend the company to a friend. He also owns the lion's share of total voting power of the company. He has uh, special classes of stock that gets 40 votes of shares. So he owns about 18 million uh, shares of stock. That's a tidy number that's worth a couple hundred million dollars. And his incentive package should even increase that over time if the company uh, succeeds. But because they're super voting shares, this is a company that is uh, controlled by him. One other thing that I want to say about the management team is you have to look at the president of this company uh, too. Uh, The president's name is Tim Myopopoulos. Myopopoulos. Again, I'm terrible at pronunciation, but what's exciting about him is he was the CEO at Fannie Mae for more than six years. That is a major feather in this company's cap to have a uh, former CEO of Fannie Mae uh, that's a part of this company's executive team, and he's been there for two and a half years. One other thing that's worth noting is PayPal co-founder Max Levchin was one of the early investors in this company. That's a heck of a good backing from the management team and early investor perspective. I feel like Max Levchin has been name-checked on Industry Focus several times recently. We, we've talked about uh, a couple different companies that have come public recently uh, that he was either uh, an early investor in or uh, involved in with the management team in, in one way or another. Um, good for him. I mean, I'm sure he's doing pretty well. <laughs> he knows fintech, right? I mean, as if that name sounds familiar, not only did he co-found PayPal, he's currently the CEO of uh, a firm. So he's got an eye for, for fintech. So it is. it does uh, give me hope that he's an investor in this company. Yeah. And given the pedigree of the folks in the mix here, um, I, I think it's safe to say, Brian, that there is a sizable opportunity here with this business. Uh, we talked about just the sheer amount of money uh, that they help facilitate uh, on a daily basis. It gets big fast when you're in the mortgage industry. Um, and the, the fact that they are increasingly expanding into other elements of consumer credit and financial products just means that the opportunity is going to get bigger and bigger. 
the company does provide a total adjustable market opportunity for, for itself, and it pegs that opportunity at more than $33 billion today. There's also room for that number to grow over time as it enters new product categories. Uh, one of the things that it calls out is the real estate uh, real estate commission industry is believes it can uh, get into uh, down the road. But $33 billion today is a massive number, especially when to compare it to the $100 million in, uh, in trailing uh, revenue. So yet again, if this company does doesn't work out. It's not because the opportunity isn't enormous. Yeah, it, it more likely than not is in, is probably because other people are heavily investing in the space and, and possibly beat them to it. Uh, we've talked about some of the competitors already, um, and basically, you know, within the industry, there's Rocket Mortgage, and that's you know a homegrown product from from Quicken Loans, um, and so they are kind of the standard bearer for what people expect now when it comes to you know tech first uh underwriting and mortgage approval processes um there are other players that kind of work a little bit more with banks and like we said before if you're if you're using blend as a product you're probably not even realizing that you're using blend on the consumer side um it's just that they're using a kind of a they're, they're a white label provider for the likes of a wells fargo or a u.s bank it's like if you're shopping online and you don't even know that you're using Shopify, you're probably using Shopify, but unless the company, unless the website goes out of its way to say that, you don't even know you're using it. Same idea here. Very similar with Twilio too. You've probably used Twilio dozens of times and had no clue. Yeah, yeah, and so with that, um, you know, there's not going to be a lot of like consumer brand loyalty, but there, you know, to necessarily blend, but there's going to be uh, severe. B2B loyalty uh, with, with this company. And so if there are other people that are able to hop in and provide better solutions or, or you know, cheaper solutions um, that, that might be attractive to some of the folks that uh, they currently supply their solutions to. But Brian, I think we talked about a little bit long sales cycle with this type of product, huge upfront investment in both learning how the systems work and implementing them. Um, and if the product works the way that customers expect it to, and you tend to see it in that revenue retention rate, um, they're not going to go anywhere. I don't think so. And yeah, overall, if you would do the key takeaway from me on this company, there's a lot to like. Uh, digging through this S1, I was more uh, more pleased than I was uh, upset with things. So uh, as, as a quick reminder, SaaS-based business model, extremely strong dollar-based net revenue retention rate. I think that once this product gets into a bank, it's the switching costs just become huge uh, to try and get this product out. Uh, the growth has been extremely strong. There's already signs of optionality. The, uh, the, the, the total adjusted market opportunity is large. It's a founder-led management team. And we didn't even get to, into this, but the balance sheet is going to be uh, very strong post, uh, post-IPO. They're going to have almost $600 million in cash uh, and zero debt. So while there are lots of losses, they have plenty of liquidity uh, to fund themselves. Now, offsetting that awesomeness is this is a competitive landscape, and we weren't given a full look at how competitive it is. There is a little bit of customer concentration uh, risk to get uh, to get used to. Uh, the company is losing a lot of money, will continue to do so, and landing new customers is very expensive. And one thing to note is while the company did report 98% revenue growth last year. Almost all of that was from expansion of its existing customer base. That shows that it's really hard to get new customers on this platform. On the flip side, once they're there, it's really hard to get off. But overall, Dylan, I would love to know, is this a company that interests you? 
It, yeah, it does. And, and I think there's one other risk that we should probably talk about. And it's, you know, somewhat unique to uh, this company for the tech show, because we, we don't really get into businesses that are affected directly by interest rates nearly as much as maybe the Monday financial show. And we kind of stole this company from them, Brian, but that's all right. Don't tell um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, this is a business that is going to run through the economic cycles, uh, kind of depending on, you know, where consumer confidence is, where interest rates are, um, and and how easy it is to borrow money. And so we're at a point right now where all cylinders are going on on consumer lending. We're seeing um, a pretty hot real estate market, a uh, pretty hot car market as well. And so that all bodes really well for this business. Uh, at some point, you know, the party slows down a little bit. And this is going to be one of those companies that is just subject to the whims of macro factors interest rates, et cetera, you know, if you're looking out five, 10, 20 years, I think businesses, especially financial institutions are going to be making things easier. But I think that is a kind of short to medium term risk for this company. I think that's a really good point. And the other thing I'll throw out there is as a former investor in Ellie Mae, we saw that whenever the company reported. Uh, mortgages are made in two ways. Uh, first off is just new home buying, number one. Uh, number two is refinancing. And the refinancing can wax and wane depending on interest rates. To your point, the last year, we've seen a tremendous amount of people refinance their mortgage to take advantage of the rock bottom interest rates. If interest rates rise, and they will eventually, uh, we don't know when, but they will eventually, the total demand for mortgages could fall, even if the housing market itself remains strong. So to your point, that could be something that influences this company's short-term results. And that's just the nature of the business. It is. And to tie that to something that I think folks should be keeping an eye on, watch the balance sheet and see what their cash position looks like over time, what their debt looks like over time. Um, if they continue to maintain a pretty healthy cash position, not something that you have to worry about too, too much. Um, if they're in a position where they can weather some downturns, they're going to be in good shape. But I think this is a business, maybe more so than some of the other ones that we talk about generally, Brian, uh, where you really want to make sure that they are on solid financial footing um, because they're going to have to hit those moments at some point. It's just, it's just a reality of working in this business. That said, I mean, this is a somewhat richly valued stock, Brian, uh, about just under $100 million uh, in trailing 12-month, and it was about a three-point-something billion-dollar valuation. Yeah, $3.7 billion, So that's about 37 times sales. The only thing that is confusing that is these financials are just off of the core business, and they're going to change once that acquisition of Title 365 goes through, uh, perhaps dramatically. I didn't see anything about a gross margin profile in there. Our costs going to go up? Our loss is going to go up? Uh, we don't know. So that is something that to watch. Uh, for that reason, if I was interested in this business, I probably wouldn't buy it until after we get the company's first quarter earnings report. With this one in particular, because because that is going to really change the financials in ways it's hard to uh, hard to say right now. So I would definitely want to see that information uh, with this company in particular before I invest it. Yeah, and if the thesis is more or less the same after we see that, and we see that the financials are more or less coming together the the same way that we're looking at them now, um, you know, at thirty something times sales, you know, we're we're in a rich market, and that is a rich valuation in some respects. It's not that crazy in a lot of other respects, especially because this is on the smaller side of a mid cap company, and there is a ton of opportunity in front of this business. And this this company just screams optionality to me. Um, there, I, I think you put it well before, Brian, where you said, you know, it's, it's not going to be from lack of opportunity if this company doesn't succeed. Uh, so 
there's there's a lot to like here. I'm with you. I want to I want to see a little bit more on that acquisition before uh, I pull the trigger. But this is definitely a watchlist stock for me, and and kind of a fun one because it gets me outside of the traditional tech space that I tend to look at. Awesome. Well, thanks again to uh, Julian Gregor Gregorian at Stealth Bandit for putting this on our radar. This is a fun company to research. Yep. And, and you know, we have to say it all the time and we need to emphasize it when we specifically do a show based on what a listener recommends. Give us a holler. If you want us to talk about a specific stock, industryfocus at fool.com. You can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. Brian is at Brian Feroldi. I am at Wiley Lewis. We love getting suggestions for shows. It makes our job super easy, Brian. It does. It's always fun <laughs> to get new ideas that we hadn't heard of, but yet blow us away. Yes. So huge, huge thank you to our listener today. And future thank you to listeners that are going to be suggesting show ideas. Brian, I I think that's going to do it for this one. Awesome. Have a nice weekend, Dylan. You too, Brian. Always fun to head into the weekend chat with you. And fools, always, always fun to, you know, be able to kick off the weekend with you. Maybe listening in the car, on your walk home, wherever it may be. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Spotify, podcast.fool.com. We are there. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on! Fool on!